0: Hello and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Raya and the Last Dragon, seeing how they stand up today, How they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. Disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney+, Plus. so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I love a tale as old as time as much as the next person, I'm not your Disney Versity lecturer. No, this week I'm a hapless stray scrounging meals out of bins and avoiding the dog pound van as we watch through 58 films and counting. My well-to-do counterpart from the right side of the tracks is, of course, Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, how's it going? I'm all right, yeah. Do you think I'm well-to-do? Well, in the dynamics of this podcast, I'm the like, I'm the tramp, basically. I'm the scamp about (laughs) town, whereas you are the fancy one who knows the things and has all the resources and, you know, but I have street smarts. That's what I bring
1: oh right okay yeah that makes sense did that analogy go over your head in the intro no it works it it went i I totally managed to absorb it because of how well to do i am but i just feel like in real life maybe those tracks the sides of the tracks that were coming from maybe a little bit reversed i think i could take you in a fight is what i'm saying in a scrap i mean also i think what we're
0: going to see through the course of the film that we're discussing today is that do you know what there is no right side of the tracks Uh, they're all good dogs brent is the ultimate message here. Um, are, are you a dog person,
1: Sam? Okay, that is important to get out of the way. I like dogs in theory, and in practice, okay. I get a little bit, uh, uh, I don't know, I, I don't like getting too close to them. They're a bit unpredictable. It's like an element of chaos in my life that I don't need. What are they going to do? Probably just like lick me or something nice, you know, but you don't know. Yeah, they just want affection. They just want love. They just want a pat on the head. You know, But definitely, in principle, I'm in favour of dogs. I like to admire them from a distance. But we have,
0: as you've probably seen in this episode description, a special guest with us today who I think is a dog person in a big way. For the second time ever on Disneyversity, we've got a very, very special guest, a lovable rogue with plenty of street smarts and a spring in his step. Already my analogy about me being Tramp has been broken because the real Tramp is the guy I'm introducing now. He's a guy who knows exactly where to find the best spaghetti and meatballs in town. Welcome to Disneyversity, film critic, presenter, former Empire journalist, interviewer extraordinaire, it's Radio
2: 1's Ali Plum! Hello! And the crowd goes mild! Uh, Hello, hello, this is lovely. I absolutely love me some Disney, so this is a real treat to be enrolling in Disneyversity and hopefully getting at least a B.A., I don't, I don't think an MA will be included, but I'm just excited to be here and to be talking about Lady in the Tramp. You have to come to uh, season two for the MA. That's going to be next series. But um, yeah, are, are you a
0: dog person, Allie?
2: Oh yeah, for sure. No, I absolutely love dogs. You know, when my wife and I, she's also called Allie, I'll get that out of the way. When we go for our walks, our daily exercise units, we're so often just counting the dogs. We call it Woof Watch, and we're just constantly spotting all the London dogs. Different dogs have different points, so if it's a rare breed like a Dalmatian, if we see 101 of them, that would be 5 points each, 505 points. That's the way we work it out. So we are obsessed. Unfortunately, as you may hear from the audio, we live in an attic flat, so having a dog up here isn't the best idea. It's a bit echoey, it's a bit small. So we're obsessed, but we don't have our own but we vicariously enjoy dogs through others. And we're the people at the park going, oh, can I, oh, what's his name? Oh, yeah. And asking
0: that information, like, so where did you get this dog? How, how did you get to a point in life where you were able to get a dog? How do
1: you look after this dog? Where did you get it? Can I have it? Please, can I take it now? Do you think it would
2: fit in this bag?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Question for Ali, how many dogs are in the movie *Lady and the Tramp? Breeds or number of dogs as in... Individual dogs. Well, however it works in Wolf Watch, I don't know how the point scoring system works there.
2: We don't do it when we watch the films themselves, but I think Mm. we're probably looking at about two dozen. Like, you've got the prison, as I call it, and you've got a few here and there along the streets, but really it's the core team of uh, Jock and the rest. But I've also just watched the live-action hybrid remake, so my brain is just stuffed full of Lady Anne's tramp in all varieties, shapes and sizes, so I think I'm gonna conflate both movies, so wish me luck. (laughs) <laughs> as I make zero sense.
0: Yeah, I'm excited. I, I haven't seen the live action remake. We'll get to that down the line, but I haven't seen it, so you can be our correspondent on that front. But Ali, what's your history with Disney movies? We talked a lot on this podcast and, and with Clarice who was our last guest, that we all tended to grow up on just like a very specific generation based on which VHSs you had, how old you were at the time. So what were the Disney movies that you watched when you were a kid?
2: Lion King was a big one. Absolutely loved Lion King, and I remember being incredibly disappointed. Like, his disappointed as you could be when you know you could rent a dvd and it would be the wrong one like someone would have put the wrong disc in Mm. and the wrong disc was put in for aladdin and i remember being distraught it was just like an adult film that looked boring like some sort of michael (sighs) douglas nightmare and i was just like oh no this is pain this is what pain is i will never get over this pain we adored it you know we'd we'd read the back of the magazines um, tv times and stuff and just circle all of the Disneys, for sure. They were just, like, instant circles. Absolutely. Really good quality Sunday afternoon fair with the fam. But, um, yeah, Lady in the Dramps one for me, because, yes, we are obsessed with dogs. We had two old English sheepdogs. Now, you don't get nice. an old English sheepdog in this film, but you do in the sequel in the Straight to VHS one. Nice.
0: What were their names? What were the names of your old English sheepdogs? I
2: have to know. Bumble and her daughter was called Bella. Oh. The breed had a tradition of having... um. Names that began with B, so fun. Yeah, and there's the other, can I test you two? In which other film, Disney film, would you find an old English sheepdog uh, animated, not live action?
0: Ooh, I like, I can, Oh, The Little Mermaid. Correct. I can picture
2: it in my head. And I was Bo- like, this is
0: one, yeah, because Little Mermaid was one we had on VHS. That was a big one for
1: me.
2: Bonus point, what is that dog's name? Ooh,
0: come on, Sam. All right, this is where I go, I'm the student, Sam's the teacher. You've got to know this, Sam.
1: I think its name is Max.
2: You are 100% correct.
1: Yes! Everybody
0: passes disney University. you get a degree, <laughs> you get a degree. <laughs> Everyone look under your
2: chairs, you've all got degrees! But the other big Disney film for me was uh, the, and I wish I could be part of this one, if you'll ever let me back to do a doctorate at disney University, I would love to do, can you guess, I wonder if you can guess, the utter blunder festival that hmm. turned good that was The Emperor's New Groove. Right. Oh, yeah. That's a biggie. Because that is an astonishing tale of snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. And I grew up watching that over and over and over, despite thinking at first that it was, and I'm quoting my 10-year-old self here, for girls so that's a big one for me emperor's new groove for sure
0: oh man yeah see um we'll, we'll get to this many many weeks and months down the line but sam and i watched the emperor's new groove together fairly recently that was almost like the genesis of this podcast of me saying to sam i've never actually seen the emperor's new groove it's a was like we're watching it now it's good again we'll get to it but sting got stung sting was going to write all this music and then they scrapped the whole film and they did it all
2: again and it's good you know it's a fun one. It's an incredible. How did they pull this off? It's a spectacular success out of total, I keep wanting to swear, mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone was making mistakes. Um, yeah. Anyway, one for another podcast.
0: So those were the ones that you kind of grew up watching. What are your favourite Disney films now? Because you, like me, as part of your job, get to watch lots of new Disney films and speak to Disney people. And I find that I really connect with a lot of these recent Disney films. And I don't know how much of that is the fact that I work with it versus the fact that also they're just like great films. I do think they're on a really good streak at the moment.
2: So what are your favourite Disney movies now? I think the easy one to say is Moana because the songs are incredible and the character are... Design- design is just impeccable it's just one of those really well put together utterly watchable utterly re-watchable movies but I would also include Wreck-It Ralph and parts of Wreck-It Ralph 2 because it taps into my love of video games and has that kind of fresh peppy feel I've got loads of problems with both but that doesn't mean I don't love them so yeah I think recently it's probably Moana yeah Moana is a biggie that's such a good one and
0: so, what drew you to Lady and the Tramp? You mentioned that it's one that you kind of watched as a kid. Why? Why did you pick this one to come on for?
2: I love ladies and I love tramps. Need I say more? That's it. Like I just, I've always have, always will. No. Um, part of it was that it was a favourite of my mum's. And talking of circling it in the back of TV Times, we had Siamese cats. Before you ask, Simon, Nilu, and uh, the Russian word for boy, uh, Melchik. Mm-hmm. Uh, three of them, and she loved the song that we will be discussing as it needs to be discussed, We Are Siamese. And she found it delightful and charming and all the rest of it. Watching it with 2021 vision, perhaps not so much. In fact, certainly not so much. But yeah, that that was one for me. And it's just one that you watch over and over and it has that kind of Christmas card opening and it's schmaltzy and gooey. And yet it also has spiky, dark fight sequences that as a young boy to conform to gender stereotypes as I already have done so far, fit in with my oh there's a bit more backbone to this one than I thought it had whilst at the same time being just a big hug with your mum.
0: It is a big big hug of a movie so that's enough from us we're all sat down the register's complete and it's time for class to begin and so this time after the occasionally problematic adventures of one Peter Pan we're off on a cozy canine adventure with two pups from completely different worlds in 1955's adorable favourite Lady and the Tramp. Sam, what can you tell us about the plot of Lady and the Tramp? Lady is a dog, Tramp is a dog, they're all good dogs. How does this one play
1: out? Spoilers, by the way, whoa! Lady is a posh dog owned by posh people. Tramp is a scruffy dog owned by nobody. He is his own man. And yet they manage to find love when Lady is stuck in a muzzle by a hateful aunt who was left to look after her. And uh, not her aunt, the human's aunt. And this is me trying very hard to say aunt and not ant, which would be even stranger. She was put in a muzzle by an ant.
2: <laughs>
1: she runs away, meets up with Tramp. He ends up freeing her. They have a lovely romantic evening until Tramp messes up. Lady gets trapped in the dog pound. Lady is totally disillusioned with this guy. She's not interested. She ends up home. Rat attacks a baby. Tramp saves the baby from the rat. That's basically the end. <laughs> Finished. Not going any further.
0: We got there. So normally this is the point where we talk about where Walt found the stories that he wanted to adapt, but Am I right in thinking this is the first, like, complete original Disney story? We had Fantasia was kind of based-ish on things, and and obviously all the music was pre-existing. But, like, how did Lady and the Tramp come about? Where does this date back to as an idea that was hanging around the studio?
1: It's very, very complicated, actually. It's sort of an original story, almost. Is it based on real dogs? It is partially based on a real dog, would you believe? So this actually, like a lot of these movies from this kind of era, like Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan, this dates back to Before the War. To uh, the furthest back I can trace it is 1937, where one of Disney's story artists called Joe Grant brought in some sketches that he did of his dog and... Stories vary as to whether he pitched this idea to Walt or whether Walt was so taken with sketches of this dog that he wanted to make this movie But they decided to make a movie about the dog. The dog was called lady That's all that had to go on that didn't really have a story and therefore it took quite a while to develop including long after Grant left he left and then for about seven years after they're still producing this movie about what is now just some random guy's dog
0: Do we think Lady looked the same as in those original sketches? Was that guy then at the cinema several years later like they made a movie about my dog?
1: But I don't work here anymore. It was it was a cocker spaniel, so I'm I'm guessing. I mean, they all look the same, don't they? I mean, they look very similar. Like, in fact, Joe Grant got kind of cut
2: out from all credits in the in the film when it was finally released because of reasons that you know we'll get into. But it was a rough ha ha deal for him (laughs) for sure. I don't really quite understand how Walt could be there like this, but Walt Disney, you know?
1: Well, he's a capitalist, you know? You create the characters. It's like, you hear a lot about this with, like, comic book people today, who like, people who created the Guardians of the Galaxy, etc., who are now in billion-dollar movies, who are not seeing any of that money. Similar thing with this. Like, he created the story. I guess it was loosely based on his dog. He worked on it for a while, then he went, and they kept on making it, and there is a based on a story by credit at the start of this movie, but it's not this guy. It's not based on a story inspired by Joe Grant's dog. So they, as I say, kept developing this after Grant left, and they didn't really have a story. Walt kind of changed the direction it was going in. I think it was always going to be a romance, so there was always going to be, like, a male dog, a love interest there, and they weren't sure what direction to go with that character or with the story, and then Walt a a short story in Cosmopolitan written by a guy called Ward Green. And this was called Happy Dan, the Cynical Dog. Solid title. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's quite as snappy as Lady and the Tramp. So Walt read this and he was like, oh, this should be the dog. We want a character like Happy Dan. Like, oh my God, a cynical dog. What if there was a cynical dog? That is what this whole story is going to spin on. So they started working on the story for the movie, building it out. And Walt has actually done interviews saying this is a quote when you work on a classic haven't just come off peter pan and alice in wonderland you must adhere rigidly to the sequences conceived by the author which are familiar to your audience and that is more or less what happened with peter pan and alice in wonderland and some of the criticism of those films spun off from that so Walt says here the characters came to life and the scenes took shape and we were able to alter embellish eliminate and change things to improve the material so they had this Real life dog called Lady, and this fictional dog called Happy Dan, and they brought the two together, worked on the story, and it became Lady and the Tramp. Meanwhile, Walt commissions this Ward Green guy who wrote Happy Dan to write a novel, basically the novelization of the movie, which would be released a couple of years before the movie came out in 1953, because Walt wanted to familiarize audiences with the story. So the answer to your question is various. That was way
0: more complicated than I thought it would be, but that's fascinating. That Yeah, I, I've never heard the idea of like a pre-novelization before, but we've known, obviously, they do like to base characters on things, and it, it must have been quite new for the studio to see say, we've got these two characters, and we can kind of do whatever we want with them in this feature, rather than, as you say, having to adhere to specific plot outlines or set pieces that are prescribed in, in source novels, etc. But so how is the studio doing after Peter Pan? Obviously, that made tons of money it was a massive financial hit and so are we seeing the fruits of that in lady and the tramp and in in this sort of era of disney
1: yes so a lot of that money is going into lady and the tramp that had quite a lot of time and resources to develop this it was spent longer in development i mean all of these movies spent ages in development but in terms of the active production of the movie the animation etc the design lady and the Tramp had more time spent on it than these previous 1950s movies would looked at but that Peter Pan money and money from various other revenue streams was being funnelled in a lot of different directions now by Disney. And Walt Disney is now a very, very busy man. So when he was working on like Snow White, Pinocchio, the extent to which he can be credited for every decision in those movies is debatable. But he was given them most of his attention, right? During the production of Lady and the Tramp, Walt Disney is hosting a weekly television show. He is building Disneyland the theme park. And he is producing 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which was one of the most expensive and ambitious films of all time at that point. It was like a huge special effects blockbuster. So he's torn in all sorts of different directions.
0: And as we know, Ward Kimball made him obsessed with model trains.
1: So he had that going for him as well. Yeah, he was building big train sets in his back garden. That eventually became Disneyland.
0: When does Disneyland open? How far off are we from that? Because what, this is
1: 1955? Yeah, it was 1955. It was the same year
2: came out a couple of months after uh, as in the movie came out and then disneyland opened a couple of months after
1: oh man that is an insane year for disney and all of these projects are taking talent away from the animation studio because when he's working on live action movies or he's working on the tv show or he's working on disneyland he's putting people in these positions that he trusts so the people designing rides for the theme park are from the animation studio the people You know, there's loads of animation in the Disneyland TV show that he was doing on ABC at this point. They're all from the animation studios. So, in a way, Peter Pan did mean that they could spend a bit more money on this, but this diversity of projects that the studio, that the company really is moving into, also means they're a little bit stretched at this point in terms of the talent on the ground and in terms of the attention that Walt has to give to the production. Something that really struck
0: me watching this film that I thought I'd bring up now rather than in the main discussion is that I was immediately struck that we have a different aspect ratio here. All of the Disney movies we've watched so far have been in kind of 4-3 Academy ratio, that traditional kind of boxy format, whereas here we've gone full widescreen. I don't know what the exact aspect ratio is. I don't know if you have that to hand, Sam, but what brought this on? What brought on this kind of new dimension effectively for Disney to be making their movies in?
1: Yeah, so this is Cinemascope. This is the first animated movie made in Cinemascope, which was this new extra-wide aspect ratio that was already becoming popular in live-action films. Uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, for example, which came out, I think, the year before Lady and the Tramp, was in Cinemascope. So this was mainly a commercial decision, more than an artistic one. It was Walt saying, let's plaster that all over the posters, the first animated film in Cinemascope. But I think it does have artistic implications. Like Ward Kimball, one of the Nine Old Men, did say that you know we had to re-scheme the staging of all the action to suit the backgrounds that were twice as long. Like animating in a totally new aspect ratio, that's a different proposition than shooting a film in a totally new aspect ratio. You need to make considerations for that when you're making a live-action film, but with animation it totally shifted their approach. So Ward Kimball said that We made the discovery that in CinemaScope, the characters move, not the backgrounds. So they no longer perform in one spot against a moving background. That's how shots tended to work in the earlier Academy Ratio Disney films. Now, they just have these huge backgrounds that the characters move through. That might be quite hard to picture for me describing it, but it's a big difference in terms of their process and in terms of how they plan the layouts for these things. Did that mean a lot more work for the kind of character
0: animators then? The the way that they animate characters within those settings? Like how, how does that affect them on a practical level?
1: Well, it was less the animators and more the layout artists who are the guys who, as the name implies, decide how the shot is gonna be laid out, decide where the characters are gonna go and where they're going to move before the animators do it because now you have to take into account that you can have a lot more characters on a screen at any given time but also close-ups are more difficult to frame and you can't really have one character who dominates the whole shot in a way that you could have previously it also means that we'll have fewer separate shots there's fewer cuts because you can have continuous unbroken movement across a wide area also in this film in particular I think it's very well suited because this film is shot from a dog's eye view for the most part, right? You don't see the top half of the human characters very much, if at all, in this movie. So I think the very kind of vertically narrow aspect ratio suits that because it's like you are seeing this panoramic view of the ground without... if If it was vertical, you would expect to see the humans, but because it's arranged horizontally, that's not as jarring as it might be.
0: Yeah, it does feel like you're getting a dog's eye view on this world, which is uh, a pretty neat coincidence then for this being their first Cinemascope movie. Ali, have you got any questions for Sam? Anything
2: before we dive into the main discussion? Any background stuff? What do you want to know? Can I just point out something? That if Walt Disney is saying that your movie, which wasn't fully formed, he'd seen the storyboarded version, it was something to look at, it was in some sort of shape, and he goes, this is too schmaltzy. You know it's too schmaltzy. Because if Walt (laughs) thinks it's too gooey, it's hella gooey. And I think the introduction of Tramp was a masterstroke. And I think it's interesting. You can view this movie as being very close to Walt's heart if you wanted to. It seems pretty obviously a, you know, rose-tinted look at his own childhood. Um, You know, Tramp is found in a railway underneath the tracks, basically. And he's obsessed with trains, as we've mentioned earlier. And it's set in the Midwestern upper middle class suburbs, which is very him. So I kind of watched this movie going, this is Walt Disney in 1955, trying to paint this nostalgic turn of the century brush. He's trying to really make everything lovely and cosy and wasn't it all great at a time when we were talking nuclear panic and all sorts of really difficult stuff in the mid 50s. Now, obviously, pop culturally right now, the 50s is, you know, Miss Maisel and Jolly Hockey Sticks but when you read the reviews of this movie from the time they're saying oh man this is really gloopy this is like chugging sherbet and I think I kind of want your thoughts on the tone it's trying to strike how at the time do you think this landed when it came to being that cutesy and cuddly
1: Well, we'll have a bit later on when we talk about the critics' reviews, but you're right in saying that this was less well-received, certainly, than Peter Pan and Cinderella, which are both, I mean, in particular, Cinderella is a sentimental movie, but that was one of the core criticisms that was being levelled at this piece, and that is intertwined, as you say, with the period setting. I've read some more contemporary pieces on this film which say that it's got, like, a modern setting, but of course it wasn't. This is set in, in, like, 1909 new england it's years before it's just from a modern perspective maybe you conflate the whole first half of the century i don't know but this was a time period with which walt was obsessed and in particular obsessed with reproducing this rose tinted perspective on it so we get that in disneyland itself in main street usa like the first thing you see when you're coming to disneyland It's not fantasy land. It's not the the area that's based on all the animated movies. It's the area that's based on Walt's childhood that he's recreated from memory, you know, all these different shops and stuff. But it's a rose-tinted version of it. It's a platonically idealised version of it. And we've seen that in a bunch of the package films from the 1940s. Lots of the segments in those movies, like Casey at the Bat and Johnny Fedora and Alice Bluebonnard had that kind of setting. As does one of his first live-action films, So dear to My Heart, which is, you know, set in that time period and it's in live-action, so it's not animated like this is, but it is like Disneyland, built to the specifications of Walt's memory. But because this one is animated, it means that you can really put those memories on the page. Not to say that Walt was designing these backgrounds or anything, but it means that you can literally produce this platonic ideal of turn of the century America in a way that you can't really in live action.
0: Having already mentioned then the new aspect ratio we've covered that off earlier in the show I wanted to pick up on something in the very beginning of this film that really made my heart swell and that was the quote from Josh Billings about dogs and about the fact that this film featuring two lovely dogs is dedicated itself to dogs. Isn't that a sweet thing? I mean, some people might go,
2: oh, come off it, (laughs) really? Just ease the brakes, please. Just not straight
0: down the throat immediately. It is laying the schmaltz on thick right from the beginning, right? You've got this quote from Josh Billings. In the whole history of the world, there is but one thing that money cannot buy. To wit... The wag of a dog's tail i would like to bring back to wit as a thing that we say in
2: 2020 (laughs) because that's just like good stylistic nonsense but yeah that's a cute sentiment right every time i see it i go that's not true i can pay for food and make any dog immediately happy that is such a big fat lie that is the most viable happiness there could be because dogs and this is another big twist are dogs and they love food (laughs) They absolutely love it. But anyway, you know, taking my cynical hat off. It's lovely, isn't it? Isn't it lovely? It is
1: sweet. It is sweet. Sam, who was Josh Billings? Should we know who this guy is? Ah, he was an old guy. He was a 19th century humorist. He was like a contemporary of Mark Twain. He was from, like, the Mark Twain squad. And Mark Twain is a particular obsession of Walt. You're watching Mark Twain squad.
0: <laughs> Before there was
1: Taylor Swift's squad, there was Mark Twain's squad.
2: I've got witticisms. I've got stories.
1: Mark and the boys, if you go on the Wikipedia of Josh Billings, which I did, because I do not know who Josh Billings is, there's like this amazing sepia picture of like Josh Billings and Mark Twain and a couple of other boys, just really serving looks, as they say.
2: I think, weren't they originally called uh, Marky Mark Twain and the Funky Bunch? I mean, that was, (laughs) I think I've looked at a Wikipedia page that said that, but I could be wrong.
1: Walt was into Mark Twain, he was a big Mark Twain guy, slightly predates this turn of the century period that he was really deeply obsessed with, but Again, there's Mark Twain representation in Disneyland. One of the uh, steamboats in the original Disneyland was called Mark Twain. He never adapted any of his works in animation which always strikes me as odd. But there you go, big Mark Twain head. So
0: the start of this film, the opening image is this gorgeous snowy scene. It has this really painterly vibe, it has this Christmas card feel, zoning in on the different houses in this neighbourhood and over the top of that we hear this really sweet swooning song that comes up various times through the film. Lovely Bella Notte. Yeah, have to say it I like this lovely Bella Note. Sam how does this rank for you in terms of Disney songs okay so this
1: song as you've alluded to has been performed like three ish times in this movie and this is not my favorite iteration of it I think it's obvious which my favorite iteration will be but we'll get to that in time this is a song that I sing to myself all the time just walking around that well, one all the time
2: when you're making spaghetti meatballs you're darn well singing this song
1: When I'm serving spaghetti meatballs Ah. to my wonderful partner, sorry, the the world in which, I mean, Ben knows, the world in which I am the one making spaghetti and meatballs (laughs) for her is not to, again, perpetuate gender stereotypes. It's just because I'm incompetent. As we record this, my lovely not-yet-wife made me
0: spaghetti meatballs for dinner. <laughs> Why are we such, like, basic boys? <laughs> <laughs> Did she know
1: that you were doing a podcast about learning in the Tramp? <laughs> no, and I only clocked as we sat down and st- started talking about meatballs. I was like, I just had meatballs. Ali, what do you think about this song? Because you give what I interpreted to be a grimace when it was mentioned.
2: No, I love it. I think this is the Disney fans' answer to that question. You know, people often ask you, Or me, at least. You know, what's your favourite Disney song? Because I do these radio shows that play movie music. And it's very easy to go, oh, you're welcome, you know, from Moana. Isn't that fun? We all like that one. You know, how about, you know, A Whole New World? Yeah, it's a banger. But I think a really good answer is this one. Because it just has that gentle, swelling, lovely catchiness that is pure Disney. It's like undiluted, straight in the vein. Ah. And I love it's it.
0: like homecoming. It's the like chewy we're home <laughs> of Disney songs. And obviously it's a super sweet song right from the beginning. Like you said, this film is a big hug and it only intensifies from there because the first thing that happens when we get into this house is it's Christmas time. There is a puppy in a box. There is a box with a big red bow and inside the box is a puppy. Now, it did strike me that this is not a good way to present a puppy to somebody because you shouldn't put puppies in boxes like that. With bows on. Oh
2: my God. You put the bow around the lid and then you match the lid bow to the bow you've also put around the box. And then you put holes in the box, then get rid of the box and just give the person the puppy. What are you doing?
0: What are you faffing around with a box for? It if is very Ali cute. is speaking like somebody who has made the fatal mistake of putting a puppy in a box the, and seeing d- the results. Don't say
2: fatal mistake. No, that's... No, 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 no. <laughs> Remove those words from your mouth. No, there's there's a story behind this, isn't there? Where it's like, okay, where is this myth of being given a dog in a box come from? Was it Joe Grant? Was it actually Walt Disney himself? Because he certainly peddled the myth that this is, you know, he missed an appointment with his wife... And then he made it up to her by buying her a chow and then plopping the puppy in a box. And I, I was wondering whether there was any more to that, because it seems a bit too perfect.
1: That's what he says, and that's all we get. Like, never believe anything that Walt Disney said in interviews, but also he was, like, the only person giving interviews about these <laughs> movies for years. So, you know, it's not like you got to sit down and interview the individual people who made these things, as I imagine you two do these days you know you wouldn't get to interview joe grant you wouldn't get to interview the animators it'd be here's walt or probably even just here's walt on his own tv show that he presents every week on abc telling us how he made the movie
0: so who knows yet where the puppy in a box situation comes from but it is an adorable opening to this movie and it only gets cuter from there because this is baby lady this is little puppy lady she's tiny she's got big ears she won't go to bed. She keeps escaping from the bed in the night. Oh, that moment when she's sort of slipping around on the kitchen floor absolutely melted my heart. When she's like nudging the door open, do all these little scrappy escapes to get out of going to sleep. Just beautiful stuff. I love the way that her owners like let her on the bed and they say just for tonight. And then the way that we transition to, to sort of grown up lady. Are they, I'm getting confused. Are they the darlings or that? No, the darlings were Peter Pan. And these are the,
2: Well, (laughs) hang on. Yeah, no, we need to make this clear. They're not called Mr. And Mrs. Deer. Oh, my wait, we are seeing the film from Lady's perspective and she hears the mother calling her husband Jim Deer and he calls her darling. So to her eyes, it's Jim Deer and Darling.
1: But having said that, There is a bit where other adult humans are calling her darling because when they have the baby shower all of the wives are there and we're getting it from Lady's perspective and she's running around through all of their dresses and they're all saying oh darling you look simply fabulous or like oh I think darling will make a wonderful mother so you could if you squint say that this is just all of these women calling her darling, but they're exclusively calling her darling, and from context, I think her name might actually be darling. I know that Ali's version makes a lot more sense, but that one scene tells me it might actually be her name. Well,
2: this kind of plays fast and loose with the Universal Disney animated idea that dogs and animals can understand humans, but humans can't understand animals because there are moments when the adults really can understand them and vice versa she gets very upset when she hears a particular phrase and she's upset at those words so she doesn't understand that they have real names anyway look let's not go too far into this because otherwise this podcast will be eight hours long
0: i can't believe i didn't pick up on the fact that that she's just picked up on the pet names for each other around the house and that's oh my god i feel so
2: dumb but maybe maybe her name is darlene ah. Oh, you know. ah brilliant what a twist can i say that i think the baby lady is the cutest disney animal because that's a top 10 list that you see everywhere baby pegasus from hercules you've got abu maybe or figaro or pua from moana but i think baby lady it's like kryptonite it's you are just melting
0: she is baby Yoda levels of cute. Agreed. That is like scientifically designed Stick her
2: cute. Stick in a floating pram that looks like an egg.
1: Oh my god. Protect her with my life. I completely agree. And I also would go further and say that this is one of my favourite pieces of character animation in Disney as well. It's so well observed. And as I said before, I don't spend prolonged periods of time up close and personal with puppies because they are too chaotic. Who knows what they're going to do? But... <laughs> This, to me, seems really well observed. This, to me, seems like a spot-on recreation of how a dog moves and how a dog behaves and how a dog thinks. And later on in the movie, they get more anthropomorphised. Later mm. on in the movie, they start to look and behave more like humans during certain scenes. But we get a good ten minutes at the start with just Liggy being a dog, and a lot of that is just Liggy being a puppy. And I think it's really well observed. That's so and
0: good uh oh it's the nine old man of the week alarm ali
1: doesn't know what that means i don't think
0: ali it's the nine old man of the week alarm
2: yes we, we tried to warn you you have to wake up some of the old men <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's the nine old man of the week alarm which means i'm going to talk a little bit about my nine old man of the week which is a guy called les clark and he is actually the first nine old man He worked with Disney for 50 years, starting in 1925. So Les Clark has actually been around longer than Mickey Mouse has. And Walt just picked him up in a candy store. Hang on, find a different way of saying that. (laughs) (laughs) Walt actually discovered him in a candy store where he was doing a part-time job while he was in high school. So he spent like the vast majority of his life working at Disney. So he worked on lots of these early shorts. He did one of our favourite scenes, The Jamboree from Snow White.
2: (laughs) Was that
0: just part of the general nonsense with the I was just
1: part of the general nonsense, yeah. Okay. Ben's not a fan. And he worked on Cinderella, he did Alice, he did Tinkerbell, so he's doing a lot of leading lady roles in these recent films. And this was actually his last film as a lead character animator. And he worked primarily on Lady, and he did these incredible scenes as puppies. The one that really stands out to me is when she's climbing up the stairs, because Her whole body is working to convey her innocence and naivety and also just to convey the way the dogs move and every footfall is so important, like every single part of her being is being acted with and because animation is such a precise art form and it takes so long and you've got to do all these different sketches and everything has to be thought out before you draw it it's hard to make it look sloppy. It's easy to make your characters look like they're moving deliberately, but to make someone look like they're moving as if they have no idea what they're doing is, is trickier.
2: There is a great bit a little later on when she's become like one years old where she skitters on the floor and it's so like the hair in Monsters, Inc. It's like, we know this is hard. But this is how dogs move on a clean, clear surface. And they put in the, in the sound effects... Part of the reason why I'm so in love with her is that she's adorable and whatever, but when she's bounding up, there's no noise. Pure lightness, pure softness.
1: Yeah, you can see the work on screen, but they've got to make it look easy because they've got to make it look light and soft, like you say. So, Les Clark kept working until 1975 as a director on special projects. So, he, he stepped back from the feature films for the rest of his career. He did a little bit of animation here and there, but he was mainly doing like educational shorts and things like that, including Donald in Mathemagic Land, which is. Let's make maths fun, kids. Yeah, exactly. Math-
0: if we call it Mathemagic Land, everyone's going to have a great time.
1: I almost mentioned it in the Alice in Wonderland episode actually because it draws quite heavily on Alice in Wonderland for its premise and for some of its iconography but the most amazing thing about this is that it was nominated for an Oscar for best documentary on the basis of it being based in facts mathematical facts there was no documentary footage or audio but just because it was teaching you the true facts of maths it was nominated for best documentary didn't win that's Les Clark what a legend
0: That's our Nine Old Man of the Week. Nice one. So as you mentioned, this is when we get Lady slightly more grown up. We get to see her kind of everyday life, effectively. She buries a bone in the garden. She snarls at a scary rat. She fetches a newspaper and accidentally kind of shreds it as she brings it into the house. All of the lovely things that dogs do, and we see that she gets her collar. And that's when we meet Lady's friends. There is a schnauzer across the road called Jock, who... just Hey, 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 hey,
2: hey. Is he not a schnauzer? I tell you what he is, mate, and you're going to kick yourself right in the gym, beers. He is a Scotty dog.
0: Scotty dog. Right, because I was going to say, it just completely makes sense that this dog is Scottish, but he completely read a schnauzer to me. How similar do schnauzers and Scotty they dogs They have a look? similar
2: kind of beard going on, but you might be right. thinking schnauzer because tramp is a schnauzer mix with some sort of terrier
0: right i I mean i'm so glad that we've got somebody on who knows all the specific dog breeds at play here. we
2: will be talking boars always later carry on
1: (laughs) i know nothing about dog breeds but i do know that in this movie the dog has the accent of whatever country his breed is most associated with If this was a schnauzer he would have had be german exactly yeah we have some
2: pretty not that great if not entirely not great at all chihuahua gags coming up down the road Not Mm. to mention some cats, but anyway, yes, carry on. There's a Scotty dog.
0: There is a Scotty dog. There is also a Basset hound who has lost his sense of smell.
2: Mate, you got that wrong as well. What? I don't know dogs at all. The whole point of him is that he's a bloodhound (laughs) that can't smell anymore. So he has a... Basset hounds also smell things. No, 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 Basset hounds ears go all the way down. They're ridiculous and they're much longer, almost like a sausage dog. They've got white patches. It's a bloodhound with the enormous schnoot that doesn't work anymore.
1: Droopy's a basset hound. There you go. I only know dog breeds if there's an animated one, so Droopy's <laughs> a basset hound. Trusty is a bloodhound.
0: What do you think of those guys? What do you think of Jock and Trusty?
1: Yeah, I like them. I mean, I quite like their relationship with each other and I quite like their relationship with Lady, but Trusty is the winner of the two, right? He is, in many ways, the heart of the movie for me.
2: Well, we'll get on to what happens with him later, but the I think Jock's my guy, although he oh. does tend to fall into that... Why get a Scottish person when we can get an American radio personality that will do a pretty good job? It, I mean, this isn't like saying, can we find a Papua New Guinean person? I appreciate that might be a bit harder. But Scottish? Can you tell us who did the voice of, uh, of Jock?
1: Yeah, this is uh, Bill Thompson, who was also the White Rabbit and he was Smee. And he also plays the British Bulldog in this movie as well. Oh, um, God. British Bulldog Ben, by the way, that's what that dog is.
2: Doesn't it show? Like, the voice isn't quite cockney. It's, like, almost there. I'm not saying it's terrible, and I think Disney has worse accents, but they're both a bit...
1: It's better than the Scottish accent of Angus McBadger in The Wind in the Willows. (laughs) (laughs) That was terrible.
0: That was shocking. How does it rate versus uh, Mike Myers as Shrek, Sam? That's the ultimate uh, American person doing Scottish accent in an animated movie. I would say
1: better than this accent, but not perfect.
2: In Shrek's defence, I always thought of it as, he's doing scottish european Of yoldy times rather than going, Mm. I'm from Aberdeen.
0: I mean, I'm kind of with you guys in that I like these characters enough, Jock and Trusty, Mm -hmm. like they're okay, but really it's all about Lady and Tramp. And speaking of Tramp, We get his introduction and I think it is one of the most perfect parts of this film. He's, as Ali mentioned before, he's sleeping by the railway and there's that moment when he wakes up and he does this big stretch and he stretches in the exact way that the dog stretches. His back legs are doing a little kick. It's so well observed. That warmed my heart so much. He's such a cool dude. I think this is like one of the coolest and best characters we've had
2: in any Disney movie so far. Tramp is my guy. Oh, he's so good. And that stretching, that's another one of those, see animation? This is it, kids. This is it. This was years. Look how good we are.
1: And you can see Tramp's DNA in a lot of subsequent Disney movies as well, like just streetwise, badass, kind of sexy animal character. Yeah. Wait, hang on. Did I just say kind of sexy? Right.
2: No. Whoa. No, 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 no. He it is. Right. We can say that, Yeah, right? no, no, no. If, if we aren't <laughs> going to say that, I'm leaving the podcast. Tramp All right. <laughs> is a good-looking mutt. Like he. The, the, the Look, we have a romance here where Walt Disney's trying to concoct, manipulate our minds amazingly into thinking that two dogs kissing is cute. Think about that for just a second. And it it is just vile. And then you go, oh, but Wait. It's got that, you know, dare I say it, dairy milk bunny thing for her. And he's got the, I think, handsome bearded chap vibe.
0: I mean, they're playing into very kind of human archetypes, aren't they? What I think is really impressive is that they make these characters very believable as dogs, but they also just draw, like, very specific kind of human personalities for them both to inhabit. And you feel that coming through in this guy that he is, like, the lovable rogue. Like, that is such a classic movie archetype, and you feel that in his characterization as well as his kind of dogness.
1: I mean, one of the things that this movie gets criticized for a little bit is the fact that they don't commit to making them either very, very dog-like or very, very human-like. But I think it works perfectly. And I think it's very simple I agree. when you watch it as well. Because they act like dogs when they're around humans and they act more like people when they're around each other socializing you can almost you can actually see i managed to pin it down to like one cut where it goes from very dog-like to very human-like and the first really human-like bit of dog acting we get is when jock is burying his bone at the start of his introductory Mm. scene he comes in running along the floor with his bone in a very dog-like way and then he buries it in the ground and then you get a close-up where he's looking very very satisfied with himself and he kind of cocks his eyebrow and that is the first bit of human acting in the film and then that transitions us into the idea that the dogs can talk, that the dogs socialise, that the dogs have human characteristics.
0: Maybe it's that from a sort of contemporary perspective we're so much more used to animal characters in films being completely anthropomorphized, that to me these read as much more dog-like in their characteristics and things Than maybe you would feel in sort of more modern movies that, like, I think they got that blend really, really nicely for me.
2: Oh, it's my favourite kind of animation. I love it. I love it when you can feel eight years has gone into making this dog feel like a real dog. I love it. I think it's beautiful.
0: So as well as his characterization as a dog, I think what's nice about his introduction as well is that he's put in this kind of heroic role straight away. We see a bit more of the neighborhood and understand that this is yeah sort of early 1900s you've got lots of like first generation businesses opening up in the neighborhood and that there's also a dog pound van which is going to round up all the stray dogs and take them away. And Tramp is immediately a hero because he sets loose two dogs that have been captured by the dog pound guy. As you mentioned we have a British bulldog I definitely knew that was a British bulldog that is in my notes i can show you but i will need some help on the other one because i just wrote down stevie nicks dog
1: (laughs) it looked very stevie nicks to me do do you want to have a go sam i was gonna have a guess is this what a bichon freeze is
2: you're not a million miles away and i'm gonna say something it's a pekinese but it doesn't look a million i don't think it's perfect in that way i think they're trying to make her feel more like the person who's playing her peggy lee so I don't think it quite fits. So yeah, Pekingese and a bulldog. Can I take this opportunity to have another dog test for Sam? In which other Disney animated movie is there a old English sheepdog?
1: We already had that. <laughs> uh, oh, was uh, this the uh, third one? I
2: came up with uh, Little Mermaid. Your turn to go for the other one. In which other one?
1: Oh, God. Oh, this is going to tick. Okay. This is easier than you think. Is it Dalmatians. It is Dalmatians. Thank God for that. (laughs) In the barn. Yeah, that's right. And his name is... It's a military rank, isn't it? But I always get them mixed up. There's like Major, Sergeant, Colonel and Captain. I can't remember which one he is. It's Colonel. Ah, very good.
2: I mean, I I knew I was going to be super impressed here, but that's just like beyond belief. But I want to just add to that conversation I brought up with a whole cute animals thing, because I need to bring up Bambi and Thumper, because the fact that I didn't at the time is just objectionable. So... Let it be said, if we're talking cute Disney animals and no one brings up Thumper and Bambi, again, I should have been shot out the window. So anyway, I've said my piece. See, (laughs) I think I
0: mentioned at the time, Thumper is like overly cute to me. Like they tried too hard with Thumper. I think these ones are pitched just right. Lady especially. Tramp is kind of cute too. I feel like Tramp is more cool than cute. Mm, That's fair. Anyway, anyway, so yeah, we have this introduction to Tramp as the saviour of the other dogs in the neighbourhood, he's looking out for people, he's using his street smarts, and that's the point, really, where things start to get a bit rocky for Lady. We understand that Darling is pregnant, there's a moment where a Lady gets called that dog, and it's so cutting, oh my god, she's been like the heart of these guys' world for several months now, and you feel like that she's going to be demoted down the ranks when the baby comes, she even gets a little slap, how mean was that? But this is our first kind of encounter between Tramp and Lady. Tramp trots past the house, clocks Lady straight away. There's a little shared moment. It's almost like a a star is born. Just want to take another look at you moment. And Tramp kind of trots in, cool as anything, joins Lady's conversation with Jock and Trusty. And Tramp gives Lady this warning that the baby is going to ruin everything. This is like the end of your setup of the film. This is kind of where the
2: meat comes in. Dude, that is classic negging. He's coming in and saying, your earrings look rubbish. And I, this house, it's not all that. What about this? These bones, rubbish. And by the way, when the kid comes, you'll be out in your bum. So anyway, stick with me, kid. I'm a lad.
0: I mean, the quote that he says, when a baby moves in, the dog moves out. Brutal. That's cutting.
1: Did it feel like a big deal to anybody else that this is a Disney movie with two adults who sleep in the bed together and implicitly have sex? It didn't
0: strike me as the time, but now you're mentioning it in that way. (laughs) Yeah, Disney is completely sexless. And obviously this film is incredibly sexless as well, but it's the most non-sex we've had in a Disney movie so far.
1: (laughs) This was around the same time as I Love Lucy, though, where they had them sleeping in separate beds next to each other. So I don't know, it feels like a thing. And all the kids in Disney movies before this just appear it's storks yeah it's storks not a disney movie get out it's cinderella's mother no not storks the movie it's the storks and <laughs> <in> dumbo <laughs> although we do often
0: invoke storks the movie with its insane lore about where babies come from
1: But like cinderella is there at the start of the movie she has a dad she has a mother who's long gone we don't have to think about that but here we have couple and there is no baby, and then there is a baby. It happened at some point. Maybe
0: a stork brought that one too, we never know. Before the baby comes, there is a great sequence with Lady in the house when it's effectively sort of like a baby shower, but also like a stag do at the same time, and we follow it from Lady's point of view. She's wandering through the women's dresses, standing around by all the men's ankles, kind of caught up in all the confusion, and it's a sign that, yeah, this house that was hers kind of isn't going to be hers anymore. And Darling has the baby, it's a boy, And the film kind of moves forward from here in that a little while later the couple, darling, dear, whatever they're called, they're going off for a bit of me time. Aunt Sarah comes in to do some babysitting and that's when things get bad for Lady because it's not that the baby's a problem, it's Aunt Sarah who's the problem. This kind of dog-hating woman who comes in with her two cats uh, who is immediately mean to Lady, chucks her out of the baby's room, doesn't understand that Lady is soft and sweet around the baby,
1: that she's not a threat. This is the turning point of the film, isn't it, really? Really weird design on that woman. Really strange face. Like, you don't spend a lot of time looking at her face. You don't spend a lot of time looking Anyone, any that's the faces, no, no, that's not but... a strange
2: face. They've just nicked it directly from the fairy godmothers from Sleeping Beauty.
1: Well, Sleeping Beauty was after this, so maybe it's well. It must around. have been the
2: same design because Lady, right, yes. they have the
1: same face. They must have thought you
0: barely see Aunt Sarah's face in here. We're just going to reuse it. You barely see the faces of any people in this
2: movie. Yeah, I definitely feel like they said we need a brief few frames of an old lady face. We're working on this over the road. Chuck it in.
1: Yeah, didn't really bother with it. She doesn't look very fleshed out. I think she looks very wobbly. Her face looks very wobbly. That might not... It doesn't have a lot of weight to it, right? <laughs> it's just weird because everything is very realistically designed in this. And you pan up from a dress or normal, normal. And then, oh, it's a wobbly old woman face. Too caricatured. It's weird. Of
0: course what aunt sarah also brings with her are her two cats and this is our outdated cultural depictions moment of the week as ever you do get that warning at the beginning of this movie and for the most part it's not as ever present as it was especially in something like peter pan but kind of like dumbo you get these specific sequences that you just go oh oh man and that is the uh, siamese cats owned by aunt sarah who they sing in very stereotypically east asian racist accents They're shown as being kind of sneaky as well because they are messing up the house, they are kind of goading her, and it all looks like it's Lady's fault, which immediately puts her on Aunt Sarah's naughty list. She's in the dock house, first figuratively and then literally, but yeah, these are some
1: pretty awful caricatures at play in those Siamese cats. The thing to note about this sequence, I think, is the role that these characters play in the narrative because they are, from Lady's perspective, these foreign invaders into her home. And when she initially sees them she smiles they walk past her and the music's playing and they're doing their very hypnotic synchronized style of movement and she kind of smiles and grins at them she's like oh what's these guys i'm intrigued and then they start abusing her hospitality and messing things up and this seems to encapsulate a very western attitude towards east asian cultures at this point in time where you know we've just had world war Two, for example where the americans were fighting against the japanese we are in the midst of cold war tensions with china for example and this really encapsulates the perspective of these cultures are exotic and entertaining until these people come into our space and start to do things we don't like at which point they become problematic and have to go and that seems to be the nub of this very racist caricatured depiction
0: and as we'll get to down the
1: line, that is obviously very different in the live action movie that came out the
0: other year. So we'll get to how they changed that further down the line. But it's kind of pivotal to the plot here because, yeah, this is what makes Aunt Sarah chuck Lady out of the house effectively. or She puts a muzzle on her. And again, that is upsetting as well because we know how sweet Lady is. She wouldn't hurt anyone. She wouldn't do anything bad. There she is with a muzzle on and Lady panics. She runs away out into the streets. There's a really great scene of her running away with the muzzle on where she's kind of running into traffic. Uh, There are cars and there are carriages honking at her and she ends up in a bad part of town and who comes to the rescue but our guy Tramp. What a guy. He's going to take Lady to go and get the muzzle off, and this is kind of where their love story properly begins.
1: He can hold his own and scrap this guy as well. He really takes on those dogs. They are beefier and angrier, and you see it mostly in Shadow, but he fends them the hell off. Tough guy.
2: I think some more of the best animation in this film are these fight sequences and later on with the rat. Um, you really feel like he's backed into a corner that he's genuinely going to lose. And to convey that to an adult audience going, oh, actually, no, he could get got, you know, in a a film where you know he's not. I just think it's testament to how well this is put together. I love the currency of scraps in this movie, because, uh, well, not,
0: like, scraps to eat, as in, like, a fight, a scrap, because, obviously, Tramp saves Lady by sort of scrapping with those other dogs, and as part of his plan to get the muzzle off, they go to the zoo, and there's a big plaque outside the front of the zoo that says, no dogs allowed, and the way that they sneak in is that Tramp... Starts a scrap between two humans outside the front so they can sneak in. That guy, he knows how to make a fight kind of go the way that he wants it
1: to. He's a con artist. He's a lovable rogue. Yeah, you get this very stereotypical Irish policeman fighting with this posh guy with an umbrella. And there's this moment that really stood out to me on this watch where Tramp, to spice up this fight, bites the cop on the backside. And the cop says, like very quietly in the mix, oh, you're pulling a knife on me now? And it's like, wait, th- he thought that the guy pulled a knife out and gave him a reach around and stabbed him in the arse. <laughs> uh, I'm suspending my disbelief here, but <laughs> he could have thought that to be the case.
2: That's so well observed. <laughs> what an improbable thing. I'm going to poke you in the bum with a horseshoe-shaped pronged knife <laughs> with
0: two sides. Once we're in the zoo, again, we see how resourceful Tramp is because his plan is kind of great, that he tricks this beaver into taking the muzzle off Lady. The beaver can use it as a log puller to make a dam and then Lady gets what she wants. He's pulling all the strings, this guy. That is a solid antics, Sam. We've spoken... In previous weeks about how some of the early disney films they like do a bit of plot and then they stop so that an antic can happen this was a really solid integration of plot and antic in the same moment i thought
1: it's definitely the best one so far isn't it it's very very well paced as a movie all the way through i would say in fact it's interesting that when people are talking about the production of snow white they always talk about how incredible walt was as a story guy like oh he had just such a great instinct for story but that movie Maybe along with Cinderella is the worst of them all in terms of pacing, in terms of how long these plotless gag sequences get allotted to them. And it feels like, because I think this was the case in Peter Pan as well, as Walt steps back, the gags get more solidly integrated with the plot and with the action. And maybe that's just because everyone involved is getting more mature as storytellers. But maybe Walt just loved these antics too much.
0: So yeah, Tramp's plot works, Lady is free to the muzzle, and this is the start really of Tramp and Lady's date. They go on a lovely date through the neighbourhood and we see again that Tramp is super resourceful. He has various places around town that he can get dinner. One of which gives us the most iconic moment in this movie by far, which is Tony's restaurant. This is Lady and Tramp sitting down to share a lovely romantic meal of spaghetti and meatballs in a lovely moonlit scene. Ah... Just swooningly romantic, right, guys?
1: Yeah, except for the restaurant is ran by this absolute maniac who thinks he can talk to dogs.
2: (laughs) Oh, I think it's so great how eccentric and weird he is. I love him. He is just a pleasant nutter. Like, what he's doing is so, like, I'm the boss. We're putting a table and chairs and breadsticks and I'm going to show them a menu and they're going to, wait for it, read it. (laughs) and then I'm going to hear their order, and he wants extra meatballs, and this is why you have that kind of ridiculous, you know, the guy serving and actually cooking the food is muttering under his breath, you know, the Mamma Mia stuff, you go, I don't blame him, this is bananas! No,
0: see, Ray, You say that, but you and me and I think probably Sam even with his slight reservations about dogs You would see these two dogs together in the alleyway behind the restaurant and you would It's when he sees Puss the second table. dog and he goes oh, It's a date. Oh my god. <laughs> yes. This is what I've been waiting for. You get out the table You get out the breadsticks you get out a candle. Oh my god set the scene I, like I would be in that place if this, this isn't just two dogs walking down an alleyway This is a romantic date.
2: You'd get it on Instagram wouldn't you? Exactly if you're an Instagram person like if you were an influencer or you had kids nearby I think this scene would just so easily be made not bananas if she had, he had a daughter or a son mm. but it doesn't matter you don't need it it's just watching it now
1: but instead, he's got this, like, straight man chef who very kindly brings out a whole big plate of bones and he's like, bones? No, the dog told me he wants spaghetti and meatballs. <laughs> and he's like, but, but dogs can't talk. And he's like, they talk to me. And then this guy has to go and prepare spaghetti and meatballs to be fed to dogs. It was probably all worth it, though, because he got to see them kiss. Oh, and the singer song. I'm oh, sorry, <laughs> it's all so ludicrous. That this... He's like, now that you've made the spaghetti and meatballs go and get your guitar it's time to put some entertainment on we call it a bella notte. it's a banger
0: i mean that one is a banger that one is a banger uh, th- this is one where the iconic moment of them sharing the spaghetti and doing the little kiss in the middle the iconic moment lives up to the legacy you know we've had a lot of bits so far where it's like oh pinocchio with the nose growing that's like actually a really small part of the film and it's just like a thing that's become the thing that everyone remembers about pinocchio this, the spaghetti kiss, is as good. It deserves that status of being the thing everybody remembers about oh, this it's movie. It's so good. It's so good. But I will say, the thing that's more romantic than that is the fact that Tramp gives Lady mm-hmm. the last meatball.
1: That yep. is the real romantic gesture here. Gives it a little nudge.
2: With a nose. A nudge
1: with his nose. Yeah. Fantastic animation.
2: I just go to pieces when she blushes and she kind of pulls her head away. Oh, just three adult men discussing two dogs kissing. It's just... So, so sweet.
0: <laughs> Sam, it's not too
2: late to rename the podcast
0: Three Adult Men Talking About Two Dogs Kissing. <laughs> this time.
1: And Walt wanted to cut this as well. He thought it was silly. What? He thought dogs eating spaghetti would be silly. There's your instincts what? of the great story, man. Oh, are you going to make the noise again as you talk about Frank Thomas? <laughs> <laughs> no, we did Frank Thomas. We did Frank Thomas on uh, Cinderella. But, yeah, Frank Thomas, nine-old man, really top blog. He pushed for it and he did the whole thing pretty much single-handedly until, and this is also interesting, they decided that it was too fast, so they got in-betweeners to do more in-between frames, to go with every pair of Frank Thomas joins that had an in-betweener go in and make a little extra one, so that it was a bit slower. And I think the timing on that nudge of the meatball, pitch perfect. Mamma mia. Ben just did a chef's kiss. <laughs> I did a chef's kiss, man. you couldn't see that. You is can take the big white hat off now, yep. <laughs> Just pop that down, yeah. So you get this song "Bellanotte," the same song from the opening credits, which is sung beautifully, by the way, by Tony, a very talented man, the owner of the restaurant. But then it transitions to a choral arrangement as we fade into Lady and the Tramps," walk through a beautiful park, which. I think it is stunning. The first background that you see when you transition to the park is it pans down through like trees filled with lanterns to this big lake. Really, really beautiful. Reminds me very much of Exhibition Park in Newcastle, where there's a very similar building behind a very similar lake. If you're ever in Newcastle, stop by, go to Sunderland and look at the walrus statue. That's your Alice in Wonderland. And then go to Newcastle, go to Exhibition Park. And look at the lake with the building that looks like the building from Lady and the Champ* across the lake.
0: Will I find an adorable roundabout town dog who has fallen asleep under the floppy ear of a very posh lady dog? I mean, what
1: could arrange
2: it. The
0: fact that he wakes up under her floppy ear just absolutely exploded my heart into a million pieces.
2: Can I ask you an on-the-spot question, Sam, that may make you uncomfortable? Okay. All right, deep breaths. What does JM and EB stand for? So there's the heart in the cement. Oh yeah yeah. And it says JM loves EB and they put their paw prints underneath it. Is that something I'm not getting? I've always thought oh that's a joke or a reference I'm I
1: just yeah, don't know. That hit me actually on this watch through because I was thinking did the dogs write that but then that's not their names so is it yeah maybe it's someone on staff and their yeah. partner or something i'd I don't just really love know. to
2: know that that's like a big disney mystery for me i just i've never understood it i have to imagine obviously the story is someone's drawn it someone jm eb yeah they've done it, and they've just put their paw prints on fine but who are they because surely it should be walt disney loves peggy lee <laughs> i mean that's the fun but anyway
1: yeah, I'm running through all of my Disney staff member names in my head, trying to find a gem, and not a leaping to mind. All
2: right, well, one for the super, super, super,
1: super, super fans.
2: So yeah, they go for
0: a lovely moonlit walk. They spend the night together, and Tramp kind of basically tries to point out to Lady, look, there's more to life. Open your eyes to what a dog's life can really be, he says. Uh, so Lady's horizons have kind of been expanded. But as Tramp takes Lady home... There is an element of jeopardy. We see the dog pound van is around again and there is confusion, basically. They go and chase some chickens. The farmer shoots at Lady and Tramp. They run away from the farmer who's shooting at them and Lady is caught by the dog pound. And this is, it's a sad but great sequence, right? This is basically dog prison. I love that the bars are kind of casting shadows that look like the pups are kind of imprisoned. They're howling the blues. We even, oh God, it's so upsetting. We have a close-up of a dog crying, which maybe was a bit too much for me.
1: Well, what about when one of them gets taken away to be executed?
0: <laughs> the long walk. Oh my God,
1: awful. It's basically a prison movie for a bit, right? You get the little Dashin doing the Shawshank Redemption thing, trying to dig himself out. I would watch a movie of this. Yeah, no, I would watch it. I would watch Dog Prison Break. Yeah. The the Shawshank Dog Demption? Yeah. All these crazy (laughs) ethnic stereotype characters just hanging out in the. Again, it's the dog has the accent of the place where it's from.
2: The Russian borzoi quoting literature. And, you know, apparently in an original draft, it was going to be a love triangle where you had Lady Tramp and this Russian wolfhound. And it's like, good move. I really like that it's, what, 70, 80 minutes tops?
1: No, thanks. That would be too much. Doesn't
0: need a love triangle.
1: I really love that character, the Russian dog. The Russian Borzoi. Bozoi? That's the one. Big boy? Bozoi, long boy? Yes, that's right. The long big boy. Yep, go on. He is a wonderful character. Can
2: I give you one guess as to what his character's name is?
1: Oh, well... I'm going to give this to Ben because I know it.
2: Um, You've got a Russian. Right. And he's called... Sergei? Oh!
1: <laughs> it's the other one. It's Boris. <laughs> it's big boy Boris, Boris. <laughs> the Borzoi. Boris the Borzoi. I should have got the alliteration there. <laughs> well, I love the way they do this character. This just really soft-spoken, like, philosophical guy in the love triangle version which is on disney plus the storyboards are on there and they have voiced it he's kind of a skis he's like this pepe le pew style character who's trying to pass himself off as a russian aristocrat to get with lady did not like that sorry did you say aristocats? Arist. <laughs> he's a well there is a russian aristocrat but we'll get to that in a few movies time i'm sure that character is also called boris yep <laughs>
0: Yeah, there's definitely a few more outdated cultural depictions here, oh. especially we've already mentioned the uh, the Chihuahua.
2: The Chihuahua is such a no. It's such a no. And, uh, and the hair, oh, it's such a no.
0: But we do in this sequence get Peg's song, He's a Tramp, where we learn that actually Tramp has had loads of girlfriends he's a bit of a skis he's a bit of a man about town in that way as well this is a great song i love the way it brings in those kind of jazzy blues influences kind of better than a lot of the disney movies so far we've had various moments in the package era where they're like we're gonna do jazz now and it didn't quite connect whereas this great song
1: so we're doing it in mention again as ali did earlier peggy lee who wrote the songs in this movie and sang most of them Not just the voice of Peg, the dog who's named after her hair, but also, unfortunately, the voice of the Siamese cats, and the voice of Darling. So, triple threat. And, yeah, this is an example. It's something that Walt did a lot when they were making Melody Time and Make My Music, was bringing big-name pop stars. And, of course, Bing Crosby on Ichabod and Mr. Toad, bringing these big names and get them to perform, but they take it a little bit further with Peggy Lee. This is kind of another step on the road towards where I would eventually get with the Robin Williams genie, where this person's really being drafted in to bring their very specific set of skills to this movie, and the whole character's being built around that.
2: I think it's a really nice sequence. I think it's fun and, dare I say it, sexy. It's kind of got this cute vibe and them all playing music along. I loved as a kid the tail on the bowl and then on the bucket, I just I love that sort of little gag. I, th- I think it's a really nice sequence.
1: You've got the I don't even know how you describe it, the singing dogs. They're doing like howl singing. They're like harmonizing their howls together like all
0: the way through. That was a solid impersonation there as well, Sam. I appreciated that.
1: I've had a lot of practice. That's another song that I'm just constantly singing in the house.
2: I also just love the idea that you're giving your lectures at uni going and if you remember correctly <laughs>
1: That was also very good. We should... Ben, can you do one and we can get the whole group oh together? Oh, God. I feel the depression now. Okay, hang on, hang on.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: it wasn't as good. I'm letting the side down. You guys go on without me. You should be a double act. He's it's fine. a train. so the thing as well that this song does do is that it pushes the plot along nicely as well because out of this song comes the idea that if tramp ever does properly fall in love he's been in all of these entanglements before to use a 2021 phrase but if he did actually fall in love he might be more vulnerable to getting caught it's his having no attachments having no real kind of responsibilities that means he lives this scot-free life and that tees up the fact that lady is picked up by her owners who presumably go to aunt sarah and say what the hell Hell, did you do? Why is my dog in the dog pound? Why did you try and put a muzzle on her, you crazy, crazy aunt? And it sets up the kind of end game effectively where there is a scary rat in the house, in the baby's room. It's gonna attack the baby. Lady is chained up in the dog house. So the only person or dog person who can save the day is Tramp. You get this really amazing shot in this rat versus baby sequence, this really scary shot of the rat standing on the baby's crib, super threatening.
1: And yeah, this isn't just the first Disney movie with implied sex. This is the first Disney movie, I think, where the villain's goal is to eat a baby. <laughs> I cool. think that is
0: a first, you know? Yeah.
1: I'm I'm now again running back through my mind are there any others that I've missed, but I'm pretty sure this is the one.
0: And you get this nice action sequence, basically, where, yeah, Tramp comes in the house. He's trying to get the rats. Uh, the crib is knocked over in the kerfuffle. Sarah locks the dogs away. She's going to call the pound. But the couple comes back just as Tramp is being taken away. Lady shows the couple that there's a rat. There's vindication that Sarah is just the worst human in the world. And if that wasn't enough jeopardy, though, of, of the rat versus baby, the baby in danger, you have Jock and Trusty chasing the dog pound cart down the street. And Tressie gets hit by the dog pound cart. That was horrifying to me. Are they really going to kill one of the dogs in this movie? And he's a
1: real hero here. Like, he has the big heroic moment all the way through of being told that he's lost his sense of smell and he doesn't want to admit it. But here, he's the guy who tracks down the dog catcher with his incredible sense of smell, flings himself in the way of the cart, knocks it down to help free Tramp. But yeah, he gets a bit mangled, he gets a bit crushed, and it really looks like he's going to die. Jock does a spine-chilling howl in the morning, and then we cut to Christmas Day.
0: Yep, the circle is complete, the cycle of a year. Uh, Thankfully, we end on a happy note. It's Christmas, Trusty is okay, he's all good, and there are little Lady and Tramp babies! The deer and darling and whatever their names are have adopted Tramp, he has a collar and everything, he's officially owned, and yet there are little lady and Tramp babies, which is just the cutest thing in the world. I love the, the little baby Tramp pulling apart Jock's tartan jumper, just like nibbling at the little threads. Oh, beautiful stuff.
1: And of course, as we all know by the rules of cartoon logic, if two dogs have a set of babies, the guys all look identical to the father and the girls all look identical to the mother. That's just how it works, it's just biology.
2: Doggone. Which is the joke they finally make at the end of that scene.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they held off on it for a while, but they do it, they go there.
2: They did their best, but they
1: couldn't resist. Had to do that eventually, didn't they? Right at the end of the movie.
2: The story I heard is that originally he was going to die, and then they decided, actually, no, this is too bleak, and then we're going to bring him back with a sore paw... And of course, you have the little story we haven't mentioned, which is Jock and Trusty wanting to marry Lady to make an honest dog of her.
1: <laughs> yeah, oh that's the God. other thing. That's the other thing that these two guys get up to. It's after she gets taken home from the from the dog pound. I have no idea why, but they they walk up the street talking about it as if it makes all the sense in the world. Like we're gonna do it, right? Yeah, we're both gonna we're both gonna ask her, right? They never explain to us why they're going to do that. It's never explained <laughs> afterwards what they don't even really get the chance she interrupts them halfway through and says oh guys you know what it's all right the logic here completely escapes me as to why this was ever supposed to happen
0: i'm so glad they didn't do that i'm glad they looked at all this potential weird stuff they could do and just thought do you know what let's just end it with some cute babies a nice snowy christmas scene and boom we're out we're done that's
1: it that is lady in the tramp do you guys wish trusty had died
2: <laughs> yeah no I know why people have argued that he should have, because there is an element of, you know, you're you're not actually getting the emotional punch of him being this kind of hero who's on his last legs. He's definitely an old dog, he can't smell anymore. And this is a very admirable way to to go if you were to go. But I think after the rat baby eating bit, I think it might've just been a bit too far. And they were selling this film, certainly on the posters, as his happiest film ever. This is the balm, the antidote, the cure-all for feeling a bit blue about you know that a bomb they're testing so i get it but i also think they probably made the right decision
0: i didn't need an emotional a bomb at the end of this movie i'm glad we got the soft version So normally this would be discarded, the section of the show where we look back at the original tale that the filmmakers drew from and dig up all the weird kind of creepy stuff they left out. But this is pretty much an original story and we've spoken a bit already about things that changed through the uh, process of making it. So we'll skip straight ahead to the reviews. Sam, what did critics have to say at the time about this movie? Ali's already teed up that it kind of clashed with what was going on at the time. Um, Yeah, how was it received? Yeah,
1: generally negatively that's how it tends to be characterized in in books about this era that's insane to me yeah it was mainly because of the sentimentality which we also saw with bambi another film that we really liked people thought it was too mawkish at the time although i would say i think that's probably more fair here than with bambi with bambi the sentimentality is really foregrounded in those scenes at the start especially with the character of thumper but then as it goes through i think it becomes a lot more a little bit rougher around the edges maybe here this is pretty sentimental and sappy all the way through what's interesting to me is the way that people specifically criticized it for being made in cinemascope so the new york times said the sentimentality is mighty and the cinemascope size does not make us any less aware of the thickness of the goo which is weird (laughs) weird way of putting it
0: if i ever filed a review that talked about the thickness of the goo (laughs) that would get Struck out straight away. That'll be edited straight out.
1: And the New York Times also said that the size of it made the artist's flaws more apparent, which I think is bollocks. Like what flaws? The weirdest one by far is the New Yorker, who also decried the cinemascope and said that it gave the dogs the dimensions of hippos. And it's like the mistake you're making there, New Yorker, is that they will look bigger on the screen because the screen's bigger. Yeah, like it's <laughs> bi- when you put things on a <laughs> cinema screen, bigger. Yeah, but you use your imagination and imagine that they're actually smaller. (laughs) What's that hard to understand? This movie was not actual size, two stars. (laughs) New Yorker's film critic was like a a six-year-old child who hasn't quite figured that out yet. Close? Far away. (laughs) Exactly. So you had a couple more favourable reviews. Variety, who Disney could always rely on for a favourable review for whatever reason, said that it was a delight for the juveniles and a joy for adults. And LA Times says that it was delightful, haunting, charmed fantasy that's remarkably enriched with music. So, people, so a couple of people liked it. General consensus was a bit mixed, a bit negative. Box office, really, really good. $6.5 million. So, for context, that beat Peter Pan, becoming the highest grosser since Snow White for Disney. So, they're on a real roll here. Biggest since
0: Snow White. So...
1: Disney did have its finger on the pulse end.
0: This was what people wanted to see. It might not have hit with critics, but people wanted a big warm hug. I mean, who doesn't want a big warm hug, especially right now?
2: Sorry, until it's legal.
0: Until it's legal, which by the time this podcast goes out, it will be. So I hope you've all hugged somebody in a <laughs> responsible, safe way. Go hug a dog. Go to the park. <laughs> Ask permission first. This is
2: literally what we try to do. <laughs>
0: Got it. You got to get any dog interaction where you can. But I have to say, Sam, it really makes me laugh because you mentioned there that the films that the critics kind of went for for being saccharine were Bambi and this one. And all the way through this podcast, Bambi has been my favourite thing we've watched so far, and easily this is up there for me. I think I just love saccharine Disney. I think I just really love the goopy sweetness. This film was so so charming and so sweet and so lovely and it warmed my heart in many ways. And I do think we do all kind of need a big hug right now. We are living through some pretty terrible times at the moment. Some really really hard times and this movie was a big old warm hug. It completely did it for me. This is Up There with Bambi as my favourite thing we've watched on the podcast so far.
1: Yeah, this is really highly ranked for me as well. It's one of my favourites so far, too. I'll bet I don't think you give it a star. I want, you want to give it some stars?
0: Do you know what? I, I Because we do cop outs here and we go half stars, I'm going to go four and a half. It's not quite a five for me, but it's for four and a half. I'm
1: thinking it's. Yeah, four and a half, maybe even five. I just, I love the animation on the dogs. I love the whole tone of it. I really love the fantasized turn of the century aesthetic that they've come up with here. You know, the, the romance of it, that Bella and Not There scene in the park. It's romantic. It makes you feel like falling in love. Like they've captured what it's like to be a dog. And I think they've also captured what it's like to go on like a first date and really fall for somebody. So, Ali, what do you think of this movie? Yeah, I think I love it,
2: but I also don't know when I want to press play on it. I think it's one of those ones where you know i've loved talking about it here today and i'm really enjoying discussing it because there's loads to discuss more than you might think at first glance but that said i don't know to a 21st century 2021 audience how many people outside of us being you know animation nerds will just really just go yeah this is great i think it has aged oddly insofar as it hasn't quite come around the schmaltz i think maybe some young kids I don't have my own might find it a bit too twee but I'm impressed with the pacing I think that's surprisingly modern and I think it's got enough little gags along the way to keep your eyes you know engaged but I don't know I think it's four and a half stars four stars for me I just don't know when I'm just gonna go I really fancy Lady and the Tramp where I have been like Sleeping Beauty bang it on 101 Dalmatians any day of the week and I'm not quite sure why.
1: See for me we have like just stuck it on on Valentine's Day kind of like a little date nighty thing but then you oh, know I am That's cute. <laughs> I am an animation nerd. Definitely I think with all of these early movies. Well I can't wait till I have kids so that I can test this for myself and get some real research done there because yeah, I don't know how modern day kids are going to respond to any of this stuff, to be honest, especially if they come to it, haven't already seen some of the much more recent films. I do think the pacing here has aged really well, but maybe you're right about the tone being a bit of its time.
0: Yeah, I'm completely with you on the pacing as well, because so many of the early Disney movies are kind of stop-start, as we said, Like whereas this one, it felt like it kind of chugged along yeah. really nicely. It's a film, proper film. It's a proper film. I've had a few messages from people saying, oh, my kids love Alice in Wonderland, which we just did. Um, and I completely get that because it's like 80 minutes of pure, crazy, colourful nonsense. Whereas this one, it is a bit more, it's kind of more laid back, but I think there's enough adventure in there. In And these characters are so like gettable. You immediately get who Lady is, who Tramp is. And I, I got really swept up into their little story together. I, I'd be intrigued to see if kids do too these days, but... Oh, man, what a lovely movie. I really love this one.
2: One of the bits made me go, oh, I'm not so sure anymore, is that one of Tramp's favourite activities is to burst into a chicken coop area and just annoy the chickens. What? He has an amazing line at that point as well because
0: they're having just a normal conversation and then he just says the most amazing non-sequitur segue where he just goes, not to change the subject but ever chase chickens and i'm gonna introduce that into my daily life at some point and ask somebody maybe uh maybe my other half just stop one day on a walk and just be like not to change the subject but ever chase
1: chickens and then
0: i'm gonna run away and run around with some chickens i'm
2: so glad i brought it up
1: not to change the subject but you want to talk about this movie's lasting legacy (laughs) <laughs> yeah
0: I do, yeah I do. This is the perfect time for the part of the show we call Lasting Legacy because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. In the world of straight to DVD sequels, theme parks, live action remakes, crossover movies and more, there's a whole universe out there for each character. Now Sam we've already mentioned that there is a live action-ish remake of this but where do you want to start? Do we start with the theme parks as normal?
1: Let's get parks out the way because there isn't a great deal. A bit like with Bambi, it's hard to build a theme park ride around Lady and the Tramp I don't really know what you guys think that would be I mean it would be chasing chickens around right it would be a big coop
0: and you just chase the chickens around that's what it is it's got to be that
1: well it's not that there might be a couple of chickens involved though because there's a couple of restaurants surely
0: you can get Lady and the Tramp spaghetti and meatballs of course
1: so in Paris in Fantasyland there is a restaurant called pizzeria bella notte which much like the toad hall restaurant that we looked at when we did that movie looks horrendous <laughs> just looks like really bad fast food italian but they do have spaghetti and meatballs and in Florida, on Main Street, USA, where it belongs, we have Tony's Town Square restaurant. And it just matches really well with the aesthetic of the area there. And, you know, again, it doesn't look amazing, but you can get spaghetti and meatballs, and there's like a big sculpture of Lady and the Tramp in the middle, and yeah, it's it's fun, it's fine.
0: So pretty low on the park side of things, but there are there are movies.
1: <laughs> well, actually, <laughs> before I get to the director video sequel to Lady and the Tramp quite an important bit of context for that is actually a comic strip that spun off of this movie almost immediately because a character from this movie had his own spin-off comic strip and it might not be one of the characters you expect. It was, in fact, Scamp, the little tramp dog, Baby Tramp. Baby Tramp, the one who's who's pulling apart Jock's jumper at the end. Exactly. Scamp got his own comic strip that ran from 1955. It was like a newspaper comic strip. From 1955 to 1988... And it was originally written by Ward Green, who wrote the short story that this was based on and wrote the novelisation of the film that came out before the film.
0: So he was set for life off this thing. That was his entire career.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, he wasn't writing it until 1988. I think he only wrote it for a couple of years. But yeah, Walt got him involved again to write this comic strip and give it the real stamp of approval. Scamp of approval. Oh, there we go. (laughs) It is Scamp who also plays the central role in *Lady and the Tramp 2, Scamp's Adventure, 2001. Has anybody seen this movie? Nope. I have not, but as usual, I want to guess what happens. Uh, So,
0: surely there's another meatball incident. Is it Scamp chasing chickens for an hour and a half? Do they age him up? Do they age him out of being like a tiny puppy? No,
1: he's slightly older, but he's still very much a puppy.
0: Right. I think it's mostly chasing chickens and eating
1: meatballs then. There is Meatballs, actually, they do do the Meatballs again. Lady is barely in this movie, that's the first thing, Uh, maybe like three lines of dialogue, although voiced by Jodie Benson, who played Ariel in The Little Mermaid, doesn't have much to say or do, it's mainly about Tramp trying to raise his son and failing terribly. He's a real hypocrite, because Scamp wants to be a wild dog, he wants to do whatever he wants, he wants to break the rules. And Tramp, he now loves the rules, he's grown into a real square so he's always busting his son's balls so scamp runs away to be a wild dog and he falls in with the wrong crowd he falls in with a gang of junkyard dogs run by a guy called buster who's just this really awful bloke and buster has this dark backstory whereby he is tramp's former best friend life partner did everything together but tramp left him for lady which begs the question where was this guy in lady and the tramp
2: one also he's always saying i'm alone i'm always the loner and i just live life free by myself
1: yeah when he's not with his best boy buster so he's really mad at tramp for this past transgression and he keeps trying to get scamp killed he's like oh you've got to do these initiations to get into the gang you've got to go and steal a tin can from a rabid dog or something like all these things that are going to get him killed but eventually, Scamp finds out that his dad was this street legend. He wasn't a square all along. He used to be the coolest dude in town. Tramp learns to stop being such a dick, and they live happily ever after. Lady, barely factors. The cats are in it very briefly. They don't speak, but every time they appear, you hear a little gong sound in the background. So Oh no, they what kept year that is this? Going. This was 2001.
0: I mean, they should have known better back in the day, but they should have definitely known better by 2001. Come on...
1: But the cats are handled quite differently in the 2019 live-action remake, right? Which I know Ali has seen more recently than I have. I watched it today. Very good. How was it? Tell us everything. It wasn't that bad. I think the trouble
2: it has is a a pacing problem. If you compare it to the first film where it's a punchy 70-odd minutes, this is knocking on two hours and it just shouldn't be that long. You've got to get over-the-mouth, you know, digital hybrid. Is it a dog? Mm. Is it an animated cgi monster uh you know it's kind of like uncanny valley but just around the mouth they're sweet but they can't be as cute you know And that's a big part of it is seeing how cute the dogs are and they're cute they're fine but they're just real animals which ultimately look like animals so it's all right it's got quite a few of my favorite people in it like uh, yvette nicole brown and i do find it a bit odd that the jim deer in this movie is the guy who's in project x from like 10 years ago that properly nasty party movie and now he's like well there's a paycheck from disney to be jim dear well all right i'll do it yeah it's not i don't think it's the worst remake it's the first one not to be released theatrically and it was one of those hey it's on disney plus come and get it can i just give it a review of fine i guess
0: Yeah, I mean, that that fits with quite a lot of the more recent live-action-ish Disney ones. Like, fine, I guess... So it's Thomas Mann who you mentioned is playing Jim Deere. You have got a great cast. You've got uh, Tessa Thompson is voicing Lady. Justin Theroux voicing Tramp. Uh, Sam Elliott is Trusty the Bloodhound. Very good
2: call. Spot
1: on casting.
0: Ashley Jensen is Jock. You've got an actual Scottish person to play Jock. That's that's great. And it's
2: nice to have. There's there's plenty of like colorblind casting here, but the gender switch for Jock Jacqueline is really neat. And they do this fun thing with her, which is her owner is always dressing her up. And that's kind of a fun little addition. There were little bits here and there that were mildly witty. Benedict Wong as Bulldog. Bull.
0: And Janelle Minet as Peg, my fave. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they got another musical icon to take on that role. That's pretty cool.
1: See, I had a pretty good time with this movie. And I think the thing that I liked about it was, it's just dogs. Like, okay, the mouths are weird, but like, just put some dogs on screen. I can't be mad at that. I just like watching movies with dogs in, and... also, it should be said that, yeah, this was one of the first Disney Plus original movies. And the weekend that Disney Plus came out in the UK, I did a 24-hour binge of, like, loads of stuff on Disney Plus that I'd never seen before, at which this arrived, like, slap bang in the middle. And it came out really well in comparison to things like Fuzzbucket <laughs> and Mr. Boogery and all sorts of horrendous, like, 70s and 80s Disney live-action movies that surrounded it. And I was incredibly tired so maybe that's why I enjoyed this quite but a lot. But
2: it, it is okay, and I think we need to kind of circle back round to the whole um, We Are Siamese uh, song, yeah. which is replaced entirely. The, the cats are different. They're Devon Rexes now, so it's Devon and Rex, and it's not as good a song. I think we just need to be clear that it's not as catchy and it's not as punchy if you just look at it musically, but it's a fun sequence with the tearing and the scratching and, and the rest of it and kind of making a mess with real-life animals. I almost thought they were just going to avoid it, but I kind of salute them for doing this new reversion of it. They also, you'll be pleased to know, replace Boris, replace Tuffy, and you have just different dogs in the in the pound.
0: They just looked at it and thought, they can just be dogs. They don't have to be racist. <laughs> Same with the cats. Imagine that. So would you recommend checking this out if you've got a spare, well, you said near two hours. That's
2: the thing with a lot of these
0: live-action remakes, because they they take these 75-minute films and then make them
2: nearly two hours when they kind of don't need to I would just say watch the first one if you're curious. Just, that's the one. It would be if your child, for whatever reason, is uncomfortable with cartoons. What a stretch. I just don't know when you'd want to sit down and watch this. I just don't know.
0: And what about you, Sam? It sounds like you're more up on this.
1: I'm more up on this. I'd say stick it on if you like dogs. I like the sets as well. Like It is that mainstream USA aesthetic again, but this time in live action with some quite extensive, detailed sets. And yeah, I don't know, it was a world that I like spending time in. But yeah. it's not, obviously, it's not a patch on the original. Probably in the upper echelon of the live action remix for me, though.
0: And so that is it for this week's class. Ali, thank you so much for joining us. It's been so fun having you on the podcast. Lovely to talk dogs with you. I'm so glad we had a dog expert who could correct all <laughs> <of> my uh, <laughs> incorrect dog breed uh, approximations. Yeah, it's been lovely having you on. Have you enjoyed being on the podcast and, and revisiting this film?
2: I've had a great time, almost too good a time, because, yeah, it's just dogs. It's a beautifully animated movie. It's, it's Lady in the Tramp. It is a flat-out big time classic
0: it absolutely is and no it's been an absolute delight to have you on we'll welcome you back anytime and yeah hopefully we will have you on a little bit later in the series so people can look forward to that but in the meantime where can people find your stuff i, I mean various places you've got your podcast screen time go on iplayer right in ali plum you get like a hundred plus episodes of movies with ali plum big league
2: stuff crazy You're very kind yeah You've got loads of interviews that you can check out either on iPlayer or in highlights versions or on YouTube. If you just type in Radio 1 movie interview, my face will probably pop up. Uh, but yeah, I've got that podcast, Radio 1 Screen Time, and I'm on the Twitter, and I'm on the Instagram. And yeah, Ali Plum with a B on the end of Plum, because why not just stick a B on there to confuse people and make certain folk go Plumber? And me going, <laughs> what? So um, thank you for asking, Jim, dear. And it's been a pleasure hanging out with you, darling. And until next time, I suppose.
0: Any particular like Disney episodes of things that you've done that people Ooh, should check out? what an interesting out?
2: question. Do I have a Disney-related interview or anything like that? I've got some fun stuff with the Frozen cast uh, for Frozen 2, where you can hear Josh Gad do his version of a horror movie version of, of Frozen, where um, he essentially makes it like Saw. So just type that into YouTube, Frozen 2 horror movie, and uh, you should have some fun. I need to see that. I need that in my life. Thank you so much for
0: joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. And join us again for next week's seminar, when we'll be drifting off for a much-needed nap and awaiting the kiss of a prince in snoozy princess perennial Sleeping Beauty. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you fancy dropping us a little review, we'll a cook up a spicier meatball for you. And a guest of your choice. We'll put the breadsticks out and everything. Ali's in charge of it. He's got it covered. It's called Ali's Restaurant. <laughs> for now, it's goodbye from Sam. Arrivederci. <laughs> ah, oh, very good. It's goodbye from Ali. Buena vista. Home entertainment. <laughs> And it's goodbye from me. Ciao. Thanks for listening. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on
2: Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class.